everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about the Parsha. Our episodes in the Book of Breshit focus on family and interpersonal dynamics. These conversations are candid, insightful, and respectful. We aim not to psychoanalyze the biblical figures, but to learn from them as we stumble through our own beautifully messy lives. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor and memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. Parshat Vayetzeh opens with Yaakov running from Esav and from the home of his youth. After arriving in Haran, he goes to sleep and has the famous ladder dream, which awakens him to the presence of God in the area he later calls Beit El. God promises him progeny and a bright future. Yaakov builds an altar and vows to return. After this, Yaakov comes upon a well covered by a large stone that must be removed to retrieve its water. Miraculously, Rachel shows up at the same well, and Yaakov, in a moment of inspiration, is able to move the stone and provide her sheep with water. They meet, fall in love, and marry. Well, not quite. As we know, the story that ensues is somewhat more complex because of social norms, because of a less than transparent father-in-law, and because Yaakov's family life seems to forever be intertwined with struggle. The Parsha continues with the birth of the tribes, a monumental historical development that takes place against the backdrop of strained family dynamics between Leah and Rachel and between Yaakov and his wives. The rest of the parasha follows the development of Yaakov's family in the house of Lavan. The dealings with the shared flocks again puts Yaakov in this position of being the trickster, likely unintentionally. The same atmosphere shrouds over Rachel's stealing of her father's idols. The family of Yaakov causes distress in the house of Lavan to the point that they realize they must leave. Movingly, the Parsha ends with reconciliation. Lavan catches up with Yaakov, guided by a divine message to speak kindly, and put things on the table with Yaakov. It is a moment of familial communication, of a desire to end things well, still sorely missing in Yaakov and Esav's relationship. Beautifully, Yaakov's meeting with Rachel begins with the removal of a stone from a well, and the Parsha ends here with the erection of a monument, symbolizing Yaakov and Lavan's alliance. While Yaakov has many more miles to travel, this moment may be the beginning of a more direct form of dialogue that will surface in small ways in the coming chapters. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Rashat Beit Midrash of Vatan and its academic director, Dr. Yael Ziegler, the author of three books, one on Ruth, one on Echa, and a forthcoming book as well. Yael is also a sneer lecturer at Herzog College and a returning podcast guest. Hi, Sefa. <laughs> it's great to have you. It's great to be back. We are here today to speak about Rachel and Leah, really the episode that I wanted to devote to the topic of the sister relationship among the plethora of brother relationships in the book of Breshit. So, so let's dig into that, about what it means to be a sister and the complexities that, that we see in this parasha and the coming parashot. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting to have sister relationship. We've had many brother relationships. And it's interesting that the sister relationship is no less complex and no less troubling than the relationships between brothers that we've seen over and over throughout Brayshid. One, I think, interesting difference, which um, I once heard from Rav Moshe Lichtenstein, is that it's interesting that when brothers fight, it results in death, and that when sisters fight, it results in childbirth. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a, it's, it was, I thought that was a really intriguing observation. 
I'll make another observation, which which I was thinking about, and that is that really, you know, throughout Safer Bereshit, and and really starting in Gan Eden, we have these kind of uh, two quests. We have the quest for fertility of humans and for fertility of the land. Ultimately, this becomes the bracha that God gives to Avram. Those are the flip sides of the bracha. But already in Gan Eden, we have a sense that fertility of the land is something that Adam is somewhat in charge of or connected to, whereas fertility of humans is seems to be more in Chava's um, jurisdiction. So that when they, you know, and these are, of course are two areas where things can easily go awry in terms of our sense of power, right? In terms of our sense of dependence upon God. And in both of these areas, when Adam and Chava, when they sin, these are the two areas in which they're cursed, right? So that Adam... His curse has to do with the fertility of the land, right? You know, bi'itzavon tochlenu kol yamechayacha. And Chava's curse has to do with the fertility of the human. If you look back at Cain and Hevel, what are they fighting about? They're fighting about the land, right? And that results in, 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 in murder, in fratricide, right? Whereas Rachel Nayah, what seems to be the crux of their rivalry has to do with fertility, continuity, love, family, right? And again, as Rev Lichtenstein points out, that ultimately seems to result not in death, but in, in birth, which is interesting. But these two different areas remain sort of consistent in the difference between what the brothers seem to be, what brings tension in the brotherly relationships, as opposed to what brings tension in the sisterly relationships. Look, I think an obvious point is that biology here plays quite a role. We can't expect the men to fight as instinctively about fertility when this event is not happening on their body. So I think that Safer Breshit, you know, perhaps very much in contrast to the modern world we're seeing today, which challenges all of those assumptions, puts forth that idea, meaning this is, I remember Nahum Sarn, I believe, in the JPS commentary, he says that man and woman are given curses that relate to their main occupation in life. Now, again, we have a lot to say about that being a woman's main occupation, quote unquote, but it certainly is something that her body is destined for in a certain way. I just want to bring in a great quote from Leon Cass that says exactly an idea very similar to what we're expressing here. He says, if the Cain and Abel story shows us the unvarnished truth about the relations between brothers, perhaps this one does likewise for the relations between sisters. If so, the following comparison seems to be suggested by the text. The brothers were rivals for preeminence, to be first in paternal or divine approval, to excel in worldly standing and success, to win renown and glory. The sisters are rivals for love and creativity, to possess exclusively the love of a man, to be supreme as the mother of all living, the Emkochai. Leah is a mother who wants to be beloved. Rachel is beloved, but wants to be a mother. Brothers rage and fume, confront one another directly and fight it out, even to the death. Sisters smolder with envy and resentment, try to enlist men to aid their cause, Yaakov for Rachel, Reuven for Leah, and if they fight, they fight with speech that wounds. Okay, he continues to go forward, but I think that this point is is supremely important. Uh, we see here two different kinds of tactics. Parents of sons and daughters, whether exclusively or not exclusively, will often joke about this, right? The physical fighting versus the words. But I think that noticing those differences are key. 
Yeah. Well, without being too politically incorrect, I think that we do have to right. make observations that are happening in the stories themselves. My real question when it comes to these sorts of things is, okay, so what are we, what are we meant to learn from this? Yeah. What, what, what is Bereshi teaching us about human nature and also about theology? And what's interesting is that, as I said before, both of these areas are areas in which human beings can be godlike, right? Can, um, can kind of get to a situation where they feel we have no need of God. We're not dependent upon God. We can create another human. We can bring food from the earth. We can be creators in this very godlike way. And one of the things I think that all of Bereshit is trying to show us is that without God, we are, um, we're not able to do this, that, that these areas are areas in which even though God has given human beings the abilities to be a creator, all of this originally stems from God. One of the ways that I think that the Tanakh makes this point is um, by, you know, after God gives Avram this bracha of fertility of land and fertility of humans, we then spend the rest of Sefer Bereshit searching for fertility of the women, right? We have all these barren women and searching for fertility of land. We have all these famine stories. Now, the idea seems to be, you know, Chazal say it pretty clearly, that God makes the women barren and withholds rain from the land for the very same reason. And that doesn't mean that God is desiring prayer and therefore he, you know, kind of arbitrarily is withholding fertility to be cruel. But rather the idea I think is, is that we have to um, become creators with a deep sense of connection with God, dependence upon God. We can and we should be creators and be in a world in which we are contributing and are able to be partners with God in creativity. But in order to get there, we have to start with the baseline of tefillah, of of, of recognizing our dependence. And the flip side of this, of course, is that when they get to Egypt, what do they find? They find a land which is absolutely, you know, an abundance of fertility, both in terms of land, right? Because we have the Nile and in terms of humans, right? Think of what happens to the family of Yaakov as soon as they get to Egypt. The only story that we have of a woman giving birth where there's no crisis of barrenness is Moshe's mother. But there's another crisis. The crisis is, is what happens to a society which is so fertile and so, you know, has so much abundance, but has no sense of limitations, of human limitations, of dependence upon God. It's a society that winds up saying, Mi Hashem asher lo yadati et Hashem. I don't know this God. I have no dependence on God. I have fertility on my own right, we have this image of Paro swimming in the Nile saying, Li that's my Nile. I made that Nile. I'm responsible for all the surplus of food and humans. And when there's a surplus of food and humans, they become expendable, right? And so there's a problem in Egypt, which is, which is exactly what we're trying to avoid. And I think that so much of Bereshit is built on this. 
I'm really happy that you reread that midrash because I've always <laughs> had a hard time with it. Uh, because I did it does, see your face, by the way. I know. And I always, agree with it, you. It's it's really hard. It's also hard if you know anybody who has experienced, for example, infertility, which is the main context that I've seen the midrash in. It's a very difficult theology, but I think that that reading is really powerful. It's and I don't think it's any less difficult, but a little bit. What you're saying is God wants to make sure that we we need to suffer a little bit. Things need to be a little bit not so clear that they're going to happen the way we want, so that it. Can keeps us humble. It keeps us aware of the fact that in, in the words of another Midrash, that we don't hold the keys, right? That God holds the keys to fertility and terrain, which are again, both the land uh, and what we're speaking about here, that, that we don't we don't control those those topics uh, till the end. So I think that that's a really powerful point and, and a, much, a much kinder way of, of reading that Midrash. So thank you for that. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the the difficulty of this story, right? Which is, you know, the the, the difficulty of the relationship between uh, Rachel and Leah. You know, the the other point with regard to Rachel and Leah is that the story doesn't end there. Of course, there's there's consequences to the story. I mean, Rachel and Leah's story is not a very joyous story, right? It's nope. a very difficult story. So, you know, Rachel is the loved one, right? And Leah is described as the snu'ah, right? I mean, that's what how the Tanakh describes her, that she is the hated one. And it's not just that. I mean, you know, the Tanakh says, well, because God saw that she was hated, so God opens her womb, and then she starts to become very fertile. But the story doesn't end there. The story then really impacts upon the relationship between Rachel and Leah, where, you know, Rachel, we're told, right? Uh, she becomes very jealous, jealous of her sister's fertility. And then, of course, Rachel asks Leah, for the dudaim, for the flowers that uh, Reuven brought for Leah. And Leah's response shows her bitterness and rivalry with her, her sister, right? She, she says, Leah says to Rachel, right? You, you, you take my husband and now you're going to also take my son's flowers. So the story is not a uh, an easy story, right? It's a story that is uh, describing jealousy, rivalry, competition. It's a difficult story. It's one of the reasons that the Midrash corrects the story, which we'll, we'll get to in a few minutes. I mean, the Midrash is not going to see this story as a story of rivalry between sisters, but rather as the entirely opposite scenario in which Rachel and Leah are colluding together to help each other in their, you know, kind of joint efforts to create something that is both peaceful and not troublesome. But I mean, the story itself in the shot is a very troubling story. Of course, as we said before, it reminds us of some of the stories between brothers. We talked also about some of the differences, but it does remind us of the story between brothers. But what indicates that the story itself is in the shot is is so very difficult is that it continues in the next generation, where we have both sina and kina, both hatred and jealousy, a tremendous sense of tension between Rachel's son Yosef and Leah's sons who work together to, uh, you know, to, to really try to undermine Yosef, who is very beloved of 
you know, of Yaakov, because Yaakov loved Rachel. So we have the continuation of the story is that Rachel's son receives Yaakov's love. Leah's sons have unity and togetherness, but not their father's special love. And the uh, the tension between the sisters continues in the next generation. But that's not all, of course, right? Because the story continues later on in the Tanakh. It continues in Sefer Shoftim, Right when you have the tension between the tribe of Ephraim, who's of course a Rachel son, and the other tribes, right? You have it later on, of course, in the tension between Beit Shaul, who is a Rachel son, and Beit David, who is the, represents, you know, the the not just Leah's son, but the togetherness, the unity, the legitimate leadership, and you have it, of course, in the division between the kingdoms when Beit uh, David is begins to go astray. God brings in Yerovam ben Navad, who is, of course, from the house of Ephraim. He's an Ephrati, so he is a child of Rachel. So this tension between Rachel and Leah, it plays itself out throughout the generations. So I guess my question at this point is, is why? Meaning we could say on one hand, siblings don't often get along, right? This is reflecting reality, which is that siblings vie for a limited commodity, which is attention and love. Uh, even if a parent can say that their love is endless, for some reason, it doesn't seem to feel that way for some reason throughout the generations. So we could say that this just reflects reality. And thank God we have a Torah that brings forth things that we're going to continue seeing in our lives. Uh, it's interesting also because the way you're presenting this actually reminds me of a homespun theory that I've pointed out at different times in our life about how important it is for children to see that their parents have positive relationship with their siblings. I'll even just use myself if I live very far from my siblings, but it's who I love, but it's also important for me that my children see that no matter what the distance is, that I have a, a functioning, positive, loving relationship with my siblings, certainly with grandparents, but specifically also with siblings, because what I'm worried about right now is more about how my kids relate to each other, right? Hopefully, you know, we'll have a long journey to go on myself and my children. But I think about that a lot. And what you're bringing up here is exactly that point, is that how that relationship with our internal families will be an sometimes unintentional paradigm for our children. Uh, and I think that, yeah, to miss that, that though the jealousy and the hatred carries over to the next generation would be really to miss, I think, one of the main points about Sefer Rashid, which is that if we don't do something to stop those dynamics, if we don't if we don't do something to reconcile, it won't get better as time goes on. They're like all intergenerational dynamics that if we don't actively stop them, and we will spend an entire episode on this topic, that if we don't actively stop them, then they will persist through the generations. So other than Sefer Breshit reflecting a human reality, which is important unto its own right, my question is why? Meaning why, I, I said this to you earlier and I can ask it in all different ways, but I don't know. Why didn't we preserve the Midrashic version of this story in the Torah and then have the Midrash speak about the rivalries? Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, it would have been a little bit smoother in terms of 
the basis of how the tribes come into the world? Like why, why, what other idea do you have to offer other than the fact that it reflects the truth, which is that siblings have a hard time with each other? Yeah, well, I, I would go in two directions with this. The first thing is that the Tanakh is very aware of the pitfalls of human nature. Brothers and siblings and human beings naturally will divide um, if they don't make an active effort to overcome those divisions and that rivalry and those tensions. And what I think so much of the Torah is about is about actively trying to create a nation. Creating a nation is starts with the family, right? And and not just a nation, right? What we care about is also the creating a world of human positive relationships, right? We recognize that there are, you know, human beings easily come to war. How do we overcome that? So starting already in Breshi Perak Aleph, we're told every human being is created with its Selim Elohim. That's where it starts and embedded in the very center of the Torah, right? The central book of the Torah is Vayikra, the central section of Vayikra, which revolves around Inyane Kedusha, right? Issues of sanctity, is Kiddushat Adam, right? The beginning of Sefer Vayikra is about sanctity of place, Kiddushat HaMakom. The end of Sefer Vayikra is about Kiddushat Hazman, sanctity of time. The middle is about sanctity of humans. You know what the middle of the middle of the middle is? V'yavta l'reach kamocha, right? The very center of the Torah is love your fellow human, love your friend, whoever your friend is, right? You know, you could take it in, you could talk about families, you could talk about nations, you can talk about the world, but that's not a simple formula. Like it sounds, I think maybe You're saying so a trivial. comes there in order to teach us that we have to overcome our natural inclination not to love somebody else. Yeah. Okay. And I think that so much of Bereshit is about that. You know, what I really love about the Tanakh and what, what I see over and over is that the Tanakh recognizes human frailty. It recognizes human weakness. And then it sets the bar high, mm-hmm. right? Over and over and over, it says, you're going to fail, right? We see humans failing all over the place, but you have a goal and your goal is to overcome some of your failings. And one of the most basic failings is jealousy, rivalry, an attempt to say, you know, um, you know, you have what I want and therefore I'm going to take it from you, right? And, and how do we live together in a world where human beings are naturally inclined to think, well, you know, we can't work together because you have what I want and it's a, it's, you know, it's a zero sum game. And I think part of it is this idea that we are all meant to serve God together. And if we come together to serve God, then we can find common ground in which we share something that ultimately, um, you know, we can, we can do better by working together. And of course, also building a society, right? Building a society, but not a society that is based in a quest for power or wealth, because that naturally divides, but rather a society which is a quest for serving God together. And I, I think that that's, you know, that in a way is the, is the sum total of the Tanakh. The other thing that I would say about rivalry and competition is that there's something positive about it as well. 
not that I think that this is a positive outcome, right? In other words, the Rachel story, it's a tragic story, and especially the way that it plays itself out in later generations. It's a tragedy, and it's a calamity, and we want to overcome it, which I think we are going to talk about as well as we get to the end of this podcast. But what is positive in competition is that it emanates from the fact that human beings are different. Every person is a world unto him or herself, right? So Cain is the farmer and Hevel is the shepherd, right? And we have these sort of typologies which teach us that there are different ways to be. There are different ways to exist. There are different ways to find God. There are different ways to interact. There are different families that one could create. We're all um, different. And differentness is what ultimately creates rivalry and hatred and jealousy and competition. Differentness divides, but differentness also enables us to realize our greatness. And one of the things that I would say about the 12 tribes is, you know, I always ask myself, why do we have 12 tribes? It would have been so much easier if we had just one. It seems to be kind of a recipe for disaster, but it's also a recipe for creating a composite society that really allows for many different types of people to exist in our society. I would say the same thing about Rachel and Leah, right? They represent two very different kinds of uh, not just relationships, but what a relationship can produce, right? So the, the Yaakov and Rachel story is a story of great passion, right? Yaakov meets Rachel. He's willing to work for her. He's willing to wait for her for many years. He's willing to overcome great obstacles for her. Um, And, you know, his relationship with Leah is maybe a lot more staid, but it produces great fertility, right? And great um, and togetherness, right? Leah's sons are, 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 you know, bonded together. And these two models, I think, become models for different types of both traits and experiences that Am Yisrael is meant to learn from them. In fact, and you know, we really don't have the time to properly develop this, but I'll just throw out there the idea that Rachel becomes the mother of Galut, right? And she, her traits, right? Her strength, her um, aloneness, right? And, and the aloneness of her son, Yosef, who really stands alone, and who Yaakov blesses as Nazir Le'echav, right? He is separate from the brothers, who ultimately, of course, you know, Rachel produces not just Yosef, who becomes the leader in exile, but also Esther and Mordechai, who come from the tribe of Binyamin, who also are from Rachel, and they also are able to stand alone, right, against the tide, and to teach Am Yisrael how to survive in Galut, and maybe even how to have the passion and the patience that emerges from this passion to overcome obstacles in their quest for success. Now, Leah is a very different kind of figure, right? And there's something about, you know, the the by the books, custom, uh, you know, family that Leah produces, which perhaps becomes a model for what we're meant to implement, what we're meant to experience as a nation when we're in our land. These are two really important 
experiences of Am Yisrael. Don't, I mean, don't forget, we're really a diaspora nation, right? For many, many, many years, we needed the passion of the Rachel and Yaakov relationship. We needed the leadership of Yosef, Esther, Mordechai, Rachel, to enable us to survive in Galud. And um, now, perhaps, we are hopefully trying to implement our Le'ah side of, so, so all I'm really saying without fully developing this idea is that those two relationships, they're not just something to overcome. They're something that each relationship gives us a different kind of ability uh, to exist and to create a family that is that it exists in different kinds of situations. Just as I said about the Shvatim, that perhaps each of the Shvatim creates a different model for um, for service of God, for for becoming a you know a, a well functioning person within an existing familiar structure. It doesn't mean that they don't produce potential tensions, but those tensions possibly are worth it to create a rich and many different possibilities as to how we can, as to how we as a nation can navigate our way through our very complex history. You know, I had two thoughts that came up for me while, while you were explaining that idea. The first is that I think part of what causes trouble is when people who are different and have different personalities, which may be typified by the different tribes, lose their ability to understand really, truly how somebody can function differently. It's when the shepherd can no longer identify with the with the land worker. It's when the the fertile can no longer identify with the beloved, meaning it's not just because we don't have what they have, but something in the human experience makes us, because we're so different at our core, makes us unable to truly understand how they can function. I'll give a very practical import to this idea, which is that to me, somebody who is a genuinely open-minded person, and this comes up so much in conversation with people, is somebody who can generally understand the other side. When an open person on the mantle of their openness loses their ability to identify with somebody who thinks differently than them, that to me is when they no longer are an open-minded person. doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but you have to be able to put yourself in their mind space and to understand how somebody else can function like that. And I think that that, from a psychological perspective, is one of the deepest imports we have to the idea of 12 tribes. And when I've taught in the Matan courses of the Learn and Tour tribes, which you've also obviously taught for years, so I've I've spoken about this idea. I, I ended the course one year asking this question of why 12 tribes? Uh, and I think that that's critical, and I think we most often lose on that point, which is why this lovely theoretical idea for diversity, and if we all, if we all come together knowing that we, that we worship God, right, internally there's like an internal eye roll because it's usually the pitfall of most people, right? If only we didn't all, you know, function under the guise and worship the same God, then maybe we would get along better. Because there's something about it that brings up a lot of zealousness, and I think also because people genuinely lose their ability to occupy the shoes of somebody else. And that's when you lose your ability to live in harmony with somebody else. And one other idea I'll just, I'll just offer is that the Arizal 
speaks in one place about the different nosachim of tefillah, right? You have all different traditions of prayer, right? Whether from this land or that land, Ashkenaz, Farad, Edot Mizrach, Merakim, Temani. And he says that ultimately they all go through a different sha'ar. He says what, there's no question of which one is more accurate. They all go through their own gate. The idea being, which is that there's a space for all of them. And I think that that idea very much sort of dovetails what you've said now about the tribes. They're they're all meant to be different and they don't need to be similar, but the place I think we often fall the most is when we lose our ability to understand how somebody could actually walk through a different gate. Yeah. yeah. I would even add another word, which is I think we have to have the ability to appreciate the different contributions of people. Yeah. So that when the, you know, the farmer can say, but the shepherd brings me what it brings me, you know, either on a pragmatic level, it brings me food and, and clothing, or on another level, it brings me the idea of, you know, not being attached to a land and, 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 you know, some kind of nomadism, which is, which is an important contribution to, how the world could find God, a different kind of spiritual quest. And ultimately, I think that what the Tanakh is saying is that only by combining these different approaches can we reach something truly rich and successful. And whole. And, and whole. whole, the composite, yeah. right? The sum of the parts is greater than the individual pieces. Mm-hmm. And and this, for me, is how Megillat Root ends, right? When the people give, um, you know, Boaz and, and Root at their, you know, in the in the final parak, when Boaz and Root come together, the people give them a bracha, yitena shemet ha'isha, haba'a el beitecha, kirachel uchilea, Right? God should give you this woman who's coming into your house. She should be like Rachel and Leah who together build Beit Yisrael. And ultimately, the way that this is supposed to play out, I mean, it doesn't unfortunately play out uh, at, at the end of things in the story, but the way that it's supposed to play out is that David, who I think very much is searching for unity even even as the the war between Beit Shaul and Beit David rages, right? So David marries Michal, right? Who is Shaul's daughter. And I think the idea is, is that if David and Michal could produce a child who comes from Beit Shaul and Beit David, who is the combination of Rachel and Leah, we could create something uh, that is, you know, truly a great composite of these different traits of these different personalities, and that could be an ideal sort of leader. Ultimately, as we know, the Pasuk tells us very explicitly that because Michal is unable to accept David, and you know maybe she has good reason for that, but I'm, I'm not going to get into that right now, we're told she has no child. And you know the Mepharshim asked there, what do you mean she has no child? We're told she does have a child, but I think the idea is, is that she has no child from David that becomes this ultimate combination of the two, of, of the Rachel and Leah uh, traits. Is which that is, kind of how yeah. you conceive of Geula? That Geula is sort of that unification of all those, of those traits, of those potentials. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't mean that we won't have differentness, right? Mm-hmm. I still think that, it, that, that the 12 tribes is a model for how we can create a rich and variegated society and one that has many different people contributing 
not just pragmatically, but spiritually, each from their own perspective. I love the image that you brought of the gates, right? Everybody, everybody coming into service of God from their own gate and then joining together in a chorus, which creates a very beautiful and, and rich picture in which every human being, you know, can, can contribute something slightly different. And if we can appreciate each other's differentness, then we can overcome some of the natural rivalries and tensions that we see scattered throughout the Tanakh and certainly in Sefer Bereshit, which is what we're talking about in particular. You know, I think that one of the, the most powerful things I've taken from this conversation of ours is the idea of overcoming, which is such a great word. And I'm going to really take it with me. Because I don't think that I thought about it through that prism. When I read through the stories, I kind of like can get stuck in the quagmire of them and be like, oh, look at the patterns it created for the next generations, right? That, that's so chaval. It maybe it could have been done differently. And I think that this idea of overcoming is really powerful. And one point I want to make, which is that ideas, right? Let's say this idea of combining the Rachel and the Le'ah, right? This idea of, of passion that can be anchored into patience or dependency, which can be anchored into something that is stable in the case of Le'ah, that even when reality doesn't play out in a certain way, we shouldn't underestimate the power of ideas, meaning ideas inspire people for generations far more than the initial action that might have spurred or created a certain pattern. Only if we continue talking about the idea that it puts forward, do we maintain the aspiration of how to overcome it or to make it better. I mean, I, I, it sounds, I, I think it sounds like I'm making a point that is that is very obvious, but I think that it, it deserves to be belabored a little bit of the importance of how we can read Sefer Breshit, but we need the idea behind the rivalry in order to propel us to a place that's better, even more than we actually need to know about between who the rivalry existed. Do, do you know what I mean when I, I say that? I do know what you mean. Yeah, I think that that's a very good point. I got that from Chazal, right? Was when Chazal portray Rachel and Leah as um, you know, this 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 very harmonious relationship where they're working together, each of whom is seeing each other's difficulties and trying to help each other. Maybe we'll just mention the midrash that I'm talking about because we keep alluding to the midrash, but I don't know if we've actually said it. In the midrash, when Yaakov marries Rachel, or he, you know, he thinks he's going to marry Rachel, uh, the midrash recognizes that there's different versions of the midrash, but the midrash says that both Yaakov and Rachel. In, in different versions, recognize that Lavan is a very duplicitous uh, fellow and that he could easily do something to deceive Yaakov and Rachel on their wedding night, or Yaakov in particular, and therefore Yaakov gives Rachel signs so that he'll know that it is she that he's marrying. And when, you know, at some point Rachel regrets this because she realizes that Leah is going to be mortified and ashamed when she can't give Yaakov those signs and she's outed publicly at, you know, not being uh, the one that Yaakov intended to marry. And so Rachel gives Leah the signs. And this is a completely different portrayal 
of the 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 Rachel Leah relationship, where Rachel has compassion for her sister and recognizes that you know her sister also deserves dignity and and you know and and that her situation is is complex, and Rachel wants to alleviate that situation. So. This this midrash actually for years and years was a midrash that I found very difficult because my general tendency is to look for the seeds of the idea of the midrash deep in the text itself. It's not there. It doesn't seem to it's be there. there. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be it's there. It's what we want to be there. Uh yeah, but I I think it's I think it is in the Tanakh. I just don't think it's in Sefer Bereshit. I think that Chazal are building this on the posthumous appearance of Rachel in Sefer Yirmiyahu, where we find Rachel uh, crying uh, during Galut Yehuda, and she's crying Albaneha Kienenu, right? She's crying about her children that are not there. And it's really a curious appearance because Rachel's children, let's say, are really the 10 tribes, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, we're you know, already, yeah, we're already gone. Who left 150 years mm-hmm. ago. Why is she suddenly appearing in Sefer Yirmiyahu when Mamlecha Yehuda, the kingdom of Leah's children, is going off into Galut? And we have these bitter cries, right? Nehi bichi tamrurim Rachel mevaka albaneha. And what's interesting about this, this cry, I mean, you know, the Mepharshim go in a different direction. Who's she crying about? Some of the Parshanim there say, well, she's crying about the the 10 tribes, which happened a long time ago, because it's such a difficult thing to understand. Why is Rachel standing there crying over Leah's children? And what's even more interesting is that this is a beautiful frame for Rachel's life. Rachel's first words are, Havali banim v'im ayin meita anochi, right? Bring me children, and if not, I am dead. And here we have uh, so her life is framed by this quest for children that are elusive. I think, Yosefa, we once discussed this when we were discussing our four-part series on characterization in Tanakh. I believe we talked about this, this scenario as well. But what I want to say for our purposes today in trying to understand this Midrash is that the word Tamrurim, right? Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, goodness. You see what I'm doing yes. with this, right? Nihi bichi Tamrurim. It's usually um, uh, oh, wow. translated as bitter cries. We have these bitter cries. But actually, what does Tamrurim mean aside from it bitter? It a sign. It means a sign. And you know what it means in the continuation of these psukim? It means a sign. In pasuk kaf, right? Just, you know, less than, uh, just five psukim later, we're told, hatzivilach tziyunim, similach tamrurim. It's signs. And so what Chazal are suggesting is, is that Rachel makes a posthumous appearance in order to collude or to team up with Leah. And she uses her power, the power of passion, the power of desire for children, for continuity, not for herself, but to help Leah. And that's, I think, where the story of the signs comes from. For them to come to some sort of reconciliation. 
There has to be cooperation. Whatever we saw in Sefer Breshit, the overcoming of that tendency of the rivalry or the jealousy is cooperation, which, and you know what? Sometimes cooperation happens for people posthumously and it doesn't make it less powerful. Meaning for some people, the kind of reconciliation they have within their families can be one that happens later. And it's never, it's never too late. Meaning there's always significance. Maybe it won't be, it won't be helpful for the initial relationship between those two people, but it'll have power. It'll provide a long lasting example perhaps for their descendants. What the Tanakh is telling us is that every human being has the ability to overcome these natural rivalries. And, and ultimately, that's why, that's why it works. That's why it can work. That's what Safer Bracia is coming to show us. We need to have differentness. We need to have the potential for rivalry is there when you have differentness, but we have to overcome it to become the greatest nation that we can be. Thank you so much for this conversation, Yael. Thank you, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do One-on-One and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.